Hey you, thanks for hitting play and welcome to the Canadian Cannabis Update. In this podcast, the premise is to give leaders and organizations an opportunity to tell their stories and share information. And if you like what I do, please tell your friends to subscribe as well, either directly to me, Canadian Cannabis Update Podcast, or to the group we have, Cannabis Media Collective. You can find everything out and more at distinctmedia.ca. All right, let's begin by thanking our sponsors. They're amazing. They're at Keep Me in Business. Firstly, Harvest Medicine. Now, Harvest Medicine is a patient-centric clinic which offers free medical assessments for people just like you or me looking to explore how medical cannabis can help improve our lives. Now, if you want to learn more about Harvest Medicine or to book a free consultation with Harvest Medicine, the easiest way is to just go to their website, hmed.ca. I'll spell it for you, hmed.ca. So huge shout out and thank you to Harvest Medicine. I'm also sponsored by GrowTech Labs. Now, GrowTech Labs is based in Vancouver, and they're bringing together a new generation of diverse cannabis sector innovators from across Canada and around the globe. So what does that mean, right? Well, it means that they help entrepreneurs develop market-leading products for the recreational and medical cannabis industries. So if you work with GrowTech Labs, they'll help you by combining access to financing and they'll assist you with the delivery of world-class programs rooted in innovation, entrepreneurship, and mentorship. Ultimately, GrowTech Labs intends to expand British Columbia's influence as a global cannabis capital. So thanks again to GrowTech Labs. Oh, and by the way, I'm also sponsored by this guy. If you're looking for cannabis accessories, check out lakecitycannabis.ca slash shop. Great products and amazing prices. And don't forget, you can get free shipping on purchases over $50. And because you're listening to Canadian Cannabis Update, you can use promo code CANNA1. That's C-A-N-N-A-1. So don't wait. Go to lakecitycannabis.ca now. Go! And hey, if you have a business and you'd be interested in sponsoring Canadian Cannabis Update, just reach out to me and I will send you a media kit. You can either go to my website, CannabisUpdate.ca, or you can email me, Michael at DistinctMedia.ca. Many of us go about our lives living more or less in harmony with everything around us. Although we may not agree with the way things are sometimes, many of us still never go out and actually try to make the change we want to see. And this is where the life of an activist is totally different from yours and mine. I've always seen and read about Canadian activists in the newspaper and more recently online. And I've even thought that what they're doing is right deep down inside. But for me, it's never been my battle to fight, I guess. So this is where people like Dana Larson are different. Here's a guy who, upon hitting his 20s, made a conscious decision to do something about marijuana prohibition. Dana made the hard choice to go forth and to fight laws that he felt were unjust. He made the choice to go out and put himself on the line, get into the public eye, often in a negative light, try to educate, try to communicate his message, and to even be willing to get arrested for doing it. So now that cannabis is legal in Canada, how many of us have taken a moment to actually think about the people who have dedicated their lives to keeping cannabis legalization on the minds of Canadians for so many years? Sure, 
cannabis legalization is a victory of sorts for activists like Dana Larson. But what happens next? Is the battle over or has it just begun? Dana was kind enough to give us his perspective on where we're at now. And although I've seen and heard Dana for years, I felt like this was another person that I didn't really know who he was. So it's a bit of a theme in my podcasts lately, but I asked Dana to pull back some of the layers and give listeners, you and me, an opportunity to get to know who he is. I hope you enjoy. I want to welcome Dana Larson as a very special guest uh, to the podcast today. Uh, if you don't already know who he is, he's a business person, he's an activist, he's an author. Uh, welcome to the podcast, Dana. Hey, thanks for having me. Great. Okay. I'm going to start you off with the toughest question of the interview. Can you tell us something about yourself that has nothing to do with cannabis? Oh, geez, that is a challenging question. Uh, I've got a very cute, adorable cat named Wynn. Uh, she doesn't have anything to do with cannabis, but she brings right. me a lot of joy. Yeah. <laughs> Good enough for me. No How's CBD that? for your cat? Uh, no, she's not into that at all. She doesn't require any. Maybe one day she'll need some, but she doesn't need any now. All right. So um, for listeners who may not be uh, familiar with you, who are you? Can you tell us the story about how you became an activist? Well, I've been doing this kind of stuff for over 30 years, uh, pushing to not only legalize cannabis, but really end the whole war on drugs. Uh, I guess I started smoking cannabis in high school in grade 12. and read a book called The Emperor Wears No Clothes, which was one of the first and most influential kind of books about the hidden history of cannabis. And uh, I started a club at the university called the League for Ethical Action on Drugs that met some like-minded people. And uh, that was 30 years ago. There's been a lot of uh, cannabis under the bridge since then. So was this all, um, I guess, created based on your own experience? Uh, like you said, you started smoking cannabis uh, in grade 12. Um, was this just something that felt right to you? How come you started the activist group in university? Yeah, I, uh, I started using cannabis, but when I really started learning about it and, and discovering, you know, the medicinal and industrial benefits and the, the history and how it had been prohibited and really just the whole racist ignorance nonsense that we call the war on drugs, uh, I decided I wanted to do something about it. And um, I actually started writing letters to members of parliament. It was kind of my first activism. And when they would answer, I would keep all their answers in a binder ask them about prohibition and cannabis and the war on drugs. And, you know, for me, it's always been about more than just cannabis. It's been about the whole war on plants. And, you know, I think that it's key to legalizing cannabis to really end the whole war on drugs. But for me, it really has always gone beyond cannabis. And it's more about all of the plants together, you know, the psychedelics, the coca leaves, the opium poppy, all of these things. Okay. Uh, to me, you're all deeply interconnected. Can I ask you kind of a funny question? Um, I guess this would be, what, early 90s, perhaps, when you uh, started becoming an activist. Um, did you consider cannabis at that time medicinal? Uh, yeah, absolutely. Uh, although the, the, the range of knowledge about it and the incredible benefits weren't really known yet. So it was mostly seen as a medicine to help people with their appetites and to help some basic pain relief and then, so things like that. Uh, so there was definitely knowledge, and it was in the you know within within a few years, within the early in the early nineties, the first uh, compassion clubs started opening up. So mm. we were aware of the medicinal value, and the emperor was the clothes laid out a lot of that. But uh, but certainly the, the 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 vast amount of knowledge we have now uh, was not there yet, and the range of ailments weren't wasn't really understood at that time. Okay, so uh, staying in the nineties here for a second, um, you became the editor of Cannabis Culture 
magazine published with Mark Emery. Um, how did you guys meet and decide to publish the magazine? Well, I said I'd been at university doing my club thing, and we started putting on some rallies and doing some events. And uh, I met Mark. He moved to Vancouver, uh, 1994, I guess. And okay. I met him and started. He was doing a lot of things, had a store called Hemp BC, and he was doing a newsletter uh, called the Marijuana and Hemp. And I sort of took that over. I worked in the store for a little bit, but I wasn't particularly good at uh, behind-the-counter retail-type activity. Mm-hmm. But I was good at editing and writing and working on this, so I, I took over his newsletter, did one issue, and then we changed it to Cannabis Canada. And I did that uh, for a few years. Uh, we changed the title again to Cannabis Culture after a couple of years, mainly because we were selling more copies in the U.S. than in Canada. Uh. And Americans weren't really sure what cannabis was and were unlikely to pick up a magazine with the word Canada on the cover. So after much thought and deliberation and hemming and hawing, we decided to go with cannabis culture, which was a great decision, and it's a phrase that's really worked as well over the years. But uh, I spent 10 years working on that magazine, and it grew from a few thousand copies to a print run approaching 100,000. Uh, and after 10 years, I decided it was time to move on and do some other projects. But uh, I loved my time at Cannabis Culture. We did a lot of great writing and had a lot of fun. All right. So then speak to me a bit about um, the businesses that you're involved with. Maybe walk me through it chronologically. Um, what have you done in terms of uh, cannabis in your professional life? Well, when I left Cannabis Culture, I decided to open a seed bank. And so in uh, my year straight in uh, 2004, we opened the Vancouver Seed Bank, and then in 2008, I opened the Vancouver Dispensary Society almost next door, and that was Vancouver's third dispensary. Mm-hmm. And what we did a little differently was we were very open about the whole thing and strongly encouraged others to copy us. And I spent quite a quite a bit of time, me and my manager, teaching people how to open their own dispensaries, mm-hmm. showing them what we had done step by step. Uh, that, I think, might have been the most influential kind of project that I've done. Um, I've also started uh, a book publishing company called Pothead Books, and mm-hmm. I've got five or six titles that I sell now, Harry Pothead and the History of Cannabis in Canada. We'll probably talk about that yeah. a bit later on. I also run a business called MJ Creams. Uh, when we started, it was kind of revolutionary because we were selling topical cannabis products to any Canadian without any kind of medical requirement. Uh, and that's actually grown quite a bit, although it's still a challenge sometimes at the MJ Creams business. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think that's all of my businesses. Although sometimes I forget some of them because I've got too many different things going on. But uh, the seed bag, the dispensary, the books, and the creams are kind of like my main projects. Well, you're a busy guy. And you are also a founder of the Marijuana Party of Canada and the BC Marijuana Party. Is that correct? Yeah, those were fun times. Uh, that was back in 2000. Uh, a fellow named Bo- uh, Mark Boris St. Maurice mm-hmm. uh, from Quebec. Uh, him and his friends had started the Block Pot which was uh, a part of you know marijuana party in, in Quebec, uh, off the block Quebecois. And he decided to form a national party in 2000. So he traveled all across Canada. And then when he came to Vancouver, we all signed up to, to join the, the marijuana party and to run his candidates. And uh, I ran in West Vancouver, Sunshine Coast. Yeah. Uh, and then uh, it was uh, such a success, or such a positive thing, that the next year we had the BC elections coming up. So in BC, we decided to create the BC Marijuana Party. Okay. And that was 2001. And we actually, now Mark Emery was the leader of the party at that time. And we actually managed to run a candidate in every single riding of the province in our first election in 2001. Wow. Which was kind of historic. And there were lots of funny anecdotes from that. But really one that I, I like was that the bus, we had a bus for the campaign. 
and the bus of the bus driver were actually had also been Ronald Reagan's campaign bus as well. <laughs> and the same driver too. And then he was a funny guy who that supported Ronald Reagan and also supported marijuana legalization, even though Reagan was really the architect of the war on drugs in many ways. Yeah, and so ironic. we had so we were so we were driving around campaigning for cannabis in the, in the with the bus of the driver that had been part of the Reagan administration. And uh, you know, that was very influential. A lot of other marijuana parties started up across the country. Mm-hmm. Uh quite a few problems that still have them. Uh but a few years later in two thousand and three, two thousand and four uh, Jack Layton came on the scene uh, promising legalization and, and, and being very charismatic and having some really good cannabis policy. So many of us, including myself, uh, left the marijuana parties and joined the NDP. Okay, and I think you ran for the NDP uh, possibly as uh, BC leader. Is that not correct? Well, I ran with the NDP twice. Uh, I tried to get the nomination in my riding to run as a federal candidate in 2003 when I joined, but I, I came in second, beaten by a guy named Nicholas Simons, who went on to become the local MLA. I tried a couple of times, and finally in 2008, I got the nomination to run as a candidate. It did not turn out very well at all. Uh, the Liberal Party, I took a collection of videos I'd made for Pot TV, edited them down to a 30-second clip showing me as kind of a crazy drug-taking, cannabis-smoking uh, uh, nut bar or something. Uh, they really, and, and so I ended up having to resign uh, my nomination. It was a big scandal. Jack Layton wasn't very happy with me. I kind of dominated the news for a couple of days. And, uh, you know, I made some pretty controversial videos showing myself taking LSD and walking around the Sunshine Coast and, mm. and other things like that. And so out, out of context and in the middle of an election campaign, uh, did not do me very well at all. Kirk Tusaw, another local activist, was also running for the NDP, and he was kind yeah. of taken out in the in the friendly, you know, in the shrapnel or whatever after that, that he also ended up resigning. So that did not turn out very well. In 2011, I ran for the leadership of the BC NDP against John Horgan uh, and Adrian Dix and a few others. And uh, I, of course, I, did, I didn't win that campaign, but actually that went really well. I had a really good chance to talk about cannabis and drug policy issues with the BC party. Uh, I kind of rehabilitated myself after my 2008 debacle and uh, I had a lot of fun on that campaign. And, you know, unfortunately, we got a BC NDP government in BC now. Well, that's fortunate, but unfortunately, they have created some terrible marijuana laws and not really gone as far as they should on decriminalization of all other drugs. So, you know, despite all my work in the party, I'm still not really pleased with the policies they're putting out. Okay. Well, you know what? Um, Clearly, not all Canadians approve of cannabis use, at least not yet. The stigma is still there. So as an activist, as a, I guess politician, uh, as a variety of things, how do you approach the topic of cannabis use and legalization without scaring you know, my parents' generation away? How do you balance that? Well, you know, part of my work has, has been more focused on activating those who are already into cannabis as opposed to convincing those who aren't into it. You know, especially with Cannabis Culture Magazine, I really tried to aim that at the cannabis user to teach them and to activate them and to get them going rather than trying to convince naysayers because I felt we already really had a majority. We were just not being active and aggressive and and trying to make change happen. Mm. Uh, But, you know, when it comes to people who aren't into cannabis or who don't know about it, I think that the medical benefits of cannabis have been really instrumental in helping to change the perspective of cannabis users. I'd agree with uh, that. Because the cannabis users we were seeing sort of as hedonists and, and lazy louts and, and you know people like that. 
Uh, and when, when that perception has changed to somebody's grandma using cannabis for arthritis or a, a child using cannabis for epilepsy, it, it reshifts all those paradigms and changes their, their perspective quite a bit. Mm-hmm. So I think that's been really influential. And I think also just, you know, I think we often approach it as comparing it to alcohol or comparing it to other recreational drugs. And sometimes that goes too far, but I think sometimes that also helps people to understand. Uh, you know, I try not to give with people that cannabis is harmless. Right. Because although I believe that, that's sometimes more difficult to do. I, I more try to show people that the harms are less than alcohol and that it should be regulated in a manner that reflects that. I think those kind of arguments are usually more successful than trying to tell people that cannabis is beneficial. Mm. Uh, that, that, that takes a few more steps to get there. That's an interesting angle. You know, I, I can only speak for myself, but when I make a podcast, I, I really try to reach outside of the cannabis echo chamber. I feel like, if nothing else, the stigma needs to go away. So I try to have conversations and I try to make it appeal to people that aren't necessarily already on the cannabis bandwagon. Um, And it's that balance, if you know what I'm saying. So I was curious to get your perspective on it. Um, You've spoken about legalizing all other drugs. I've seen it multiple times online. You said it here. Do you support, though, the regulation of drugs if they're legalized, especially the ones that are psychoactive, like, say, magic mushroom psilocybin, um, with legalization of, say, cannabis as well. How do you feel about regulation? Well, I support regulation, but we say that about cannabis too. We support regulated cannabis, but the regulations that they give given us are terrible. Okay. So I don't support over-regulation and over-control and treating it so paranoidly, you know, but I definitely support regulation and I support, I mean, you want quality control, you don't want to know what you're getting. And, you know, I was thinking about this the other day, actually, about psychedelic legalization, because I definitely think you should have access to these substances, but also they can be quite risky and, and it can be dangerous if you don't know what you're doing or how you're taking it or what you're taking to use these kind of things. And so I was thinking, and this is just kind of a brainstorming idea, but sort of like a psychedelic license, for instance. You know, we want to drive a car, you get a driver's license. It's not prohibitive or restrictive or or anything, but you've got to show a basic knowledge of how to use this. Mm -hmm. That might be a way of dealing with psychedelics and that. You've got to show a basic knowledge and understanding of how to use these things properly, and then you can have access to it. It's not a prohibition, but it's just a... Uh, making sure that you know what you're getting yourself into. So I think all these substances should be legal. Uh, you can buy rat poison and inject it into your body if you want to, and that's not a crime. So why should using heroin be a crime? Makes no sense at all. Uh, but these things should be regulated and controlled in certain ways. And I think we should be focusing more on the potency and the dosing rather than the substance itself. So coca tea and opium tea or coca leaves for chewing, that should be readily available for adults without a lot of restrictions. But pure cocaine or injectable cocaine, well, that should be available if you really need it, but I'm not sure you should be able to buy that at the corner store in the same way you could buy some coca tea leaves or something. Yeah. And with opium tea, you know, opium tea has some risks, so it should be regulated in a certain amount, but it should be available for adults who want it. But injectable heroin or fentanyl, well, I'm not sure those things are as needed or, or need to be as widely available, but if you need that, stuff, then if you're already, especially if you're already injecting heroin, you should be able to get it from a clean and safe and reliable source. With alcohol too, I mean, it's difficult to buy 100% pure alcohol at a liquor store. It's usually not available. Uh, If you really want it, you can get it, but uh, that level of potency can be dangerous and there's no real need for it, so it's not so readily available. So I think that that makes sense to me. 
yeah. uh, for all these substances. And even really cannabis edibles are really, really strong extracts. Maybe they're not going to kill you, but they're certainly uh, more challenging to use properly than mm-hmm. if you puffs off a joint. Uh, so I think that kind of regulation is needed to treat these things in regards to their potency mm-hmm. and not just say, oh, this uh, everything from a coca leaf to a pure cocaine is treated exactly the same. Mm-hmm. That makes no sense at all. You know, speaking for myself, uh, if I've ever had a problem with cannabis, it's always just being due to overconsumption. Um, smoking something that's way too strong in a social setting or something like that or eating something that's too strong. So I, I hear you on that and I think that's a big reason why a lot of people are kicking the tires on microdosing these days. They're curious and they're willing to try something that might be a milligram or two and experience a very subtle buzz and I think that's a, a way to walk yourself into it. Well, as one thing, what we see will be legalized is that people want weaker dosages. Mm-hmm. With alcohol, when it was prohibited, people were drinking really strong alcohol. Oh, when it was legalized, yeah. it's beer. Now that cannabis is becoming more legal, what's the big thing? CBD, right? That's mm-hmm. becoming the most popular, most growing aspect of it. If we legalized heroin or opiates, people would trend towards opium tea and away from injectable heroin. With all these substances, I think microdosing and lower dosaging and less psychoactive forms is where most people would trend to if they had those options available. But let me play devil's advocate here because I'm not convinced that cannabis is addictive. Um, but I think that other things like cocaine or cocaine derivatives or heroin or heroin derivatives can have much stronger addictive properties. How do you speak to that if it was legal? Well, there's a lot of things that can be addictive is kind of a slippery word, really, I find, too. You know, there's habit forming and there's withdrawal symptoms and your cannabis can definitely be habit forming. And they're all withdrawal symptoms from cannabis use, but they're pretty mild, right? Mm-hmm. Cannabis use withdrawal symptoms, you might not sleep as well. You might get a little cranky. Uh, but you tend to be pretty mild, easily adapted symptoms. And because of how cannabis leaves your body, uh, those symptoms are very mild, whereas the symptoms of, of opiate withdrawal could be much more severe and everything. Uh, mm-hmm. But, uh, you know, alcohol could also be very addictive as well, right? And what I think is interesting is that we've banned a part of the solution to addictive drug use can be the use of psychedelics and entheogens can really help people break those kind of patterns. Yeah. So ironically, we've banned part of the solution to some of that addictive drug use. But, you know, if somebody's addicted, they're having an issue with something, prohibition only makes it worse. Uh, if somebody's drinking opium tea every day and they're have, forming a habit out of that, maybe that's not great. But we find when we ban opium tea, people just trend towards heroin instead, which is way more addictive right. and more dangerous and more risky. And so banning, you know, that's why I think we should regulate the more mild forms, make them more accessible. Coffee can be very addictive. And I firmly believe that if we banned the coffee tomorrow, within a year or two, we'd have some people snorting caffeine pills, injecting caffeine. A lot of folks might quit drinking coffee, but some of them would not be able to. And if it was only even 1% of coffee drinkers that ended up uh, becoming caffeine addicts or becoming, you know, having their addiction be uncontrollable, it would be a massive social problem. Mm -hmm. So, you know, a lot of things can be addictive, but the reality is that most of these so-called addictive drugs aren't really as addictive or as dangerous or as harmful as we've been told. And most of that harm is increased and exacerbated uh, by prohibition itself. That's really the addiction we need to quit is our addiction to prohibition. I guess when, once it becomes a street level and the amount of knowledge about it, it decreases due to... Um 
prohibition, uh, you run into a problem then as well because you get people who don't know what they're doing getting stuff that might be dirty, might be too strong, comes from a whatever source, and then you run into problems. Well, the iron law of prohibition is that prohibition makes every drug stronger and more dangerous, right? And Mm -hmm. I mean, prohibition even can turn cannabis into something deadly because people start using synthetic cannabinoids instead of real cannabis, and that can kill people, right? So cannabis doesn't kill, but cannabis substitutes and uh, and alternates can, and, and synthetic cannabinoids can, and that's what prohibition drives people to. So whatever the harm is with the original substance, Prohibition just makes it worse in every case. All right. Now I'm going to take you uh, in another direction here. Um, I was watching online. You spoke at a House of Commons committee meeting in preparation for Bill C-45. Um, you had 10 minutes. You took the whole thing. And I recommend anyone who has a moment to look it up and watch it. It was action-packed, you might say. Um, now, this is kind of a weird question for you, but it was a pretty big deal. Do you ever get nervous when you speak publicly? Uh, yeah, I mean, I used to get more nervous when I first started out. I've been doing this a long time now, so I've got a pretty good uh, repertoire of cannabis comments that I can pull on. Uh, but I do certainly get nervous. But uh, once I start talking, I'm usually just focused on what I want to say. Yeah. Uh, you know, I've talked in front of some pretty big crowds over the years, and it's something you get used to, you know. But certainly, I got more nervous when I first started out. Uh, that I do now. Now, speaking of that uh, committee meeting, were you satisfied with the way that it was conducted? Well, the meeting itself wasn't so bad, but a lot of this political stuff is just theater because they don't really listen to what people are saying. They often have preconceived notions of what they're going to do. And I'm not sure, you know, I don't think my testimony changed anything about the legislation as far as I, I can see. They, they didn't make any alterations based on what I had to say or what other activists had to say. Uh, so in those senses, I'm not really satisfied. But the meeting itself was actually pretty fun. I enjoyed uh, being able to talk to the, uh, the, the the parliamentarians and being able to bring up these issues. And I got a lot of views on that as well. So I think I reached a lot of, of Canadians in general. But I mean, these, these parliamentary hearings, I mean, when I first became an activist, uh, they were passing a new drug law in Canada in the 1990s. And there was endless hearings and, and the discussions. And I kept track of all of that. Everyone was opposed to the new prohibition laws of the 1990s, except for the police and the pharmaceutical companies. And they passed that law anyways and ignored all of the testimony entirely. Mm-hmm. And that's been a real trend. So although I like speaking to these folks, uh, the reality is they usually already have their mind made up. Yeah. And a lot of this testimony is just uh, kind of a theater to get them to where they want to be. Okay, fair enough. Now, you're also an author. We talked about uh, Cannabis Culture Magazine. You've written, and correct me if I've missed anything here, Harry Pothead and the Marijuana Stone, uh, Pop Puzzle Fun Book, uh, Grow Like a Pro, Green Buds and Hash, The Pie-Eyed Piper. Uh, Cannabis in Canada, is that all of them? I think that's all of them, although I've got a few new ones that I'm working on now. Okay. Uh, but yeah, those are all my books. And uh, I mean, Grow Like a Pro was more sort of a, a collection of articles from Cannabis Culture Magazine that I edited. Okay. I didn't really write that book specifically, but... Uh, you curated Yeah, and I've, got a little, I've got a little publishing company called Pothead Books. And I try to get my books out to the people. Uh, some of my stuff, the Harry Pothead and the Green Buds and Hash, I guess since they're parodies, they're too hot for some regular publishers to handle, worried about lawsuits and stuff. But mm-hmm. uh, I've been pretty successful in getting them out there, and I've had some good response over the years. So two questions. Any copyright issues? And second, and this one's a little tougher, but why write books that may appeal to kids? 
Well, I've never had any copyright problems other than publishers being afraid of, of that happening. But Harry mm -hmm. Potthead's been out for over 10 years now and never had any legal problems, nor should there be. Uh, the Green Buds and Hash book, which is a parody of Green Eggs and Ham, uh, when that one came out, I was a little nervous, not so much because of the poetry, but because of the art. It's really the similar two characters from the, the Green Eggs and Ham book. Mm -hmm. And actually, when Green Buds and Hash came out, a woman named Pamela McCall, who's kind of my nemesis in Vancouver, she's very against cannabis and does a lot of lobbying against it. And she actually call, called up the Dr. Seuss people and called up the local media. I was like, Dana's writing kids' books about weed. And mm -hmm. so the Dr. Seuss people also never responded or tried to do anything, so I think I'm pretty safe there. Uh, as to books for kids, I mean, I really wrote Harry Potter because I read the Harry Potter series. I enjoyed it. And as I was reading it, all of these sort of parallels to cannabis came into my mind. Um, I don't really write my books for kids, but especially with the uh, with the Green Buds and Hash book, which is basically a you know a, a Green Eggs and Ham parody with kind of a medical cannabis twist. I wrote it because I thought it was funny, uh, not so much for kids or really for anybody but myself. But what I've actually found is that a lot of parents do read that book to their children. Uh, and they read it as a way of, of bridging the gap or having a dialogue with their children when their children are often medical marijuana users or the parents are medical marijuana users and want to bring it up. And so I've had kids send me drawings from that book with like my daddy's medicine and then a drawing of, of one of the characters from the story or things like that. And that really, I was not expecting that when I wrote the, the poem. I really wrote it just to have fun. Mm. Uh, but I think that's quite meaningful. And, and I think there, there's nothing wrong with with stories that discuss or bring up cannabis issues for children. I think this paranoia around children being aware of cannabis or talking about cannabis is just way overblown. I don't think anybody, any kid is going to read Harry Pothead and decide that this is now they want to go smoke a joint when they're 12 years old or whatever. It's not, it doesn't happen like that. That's not really an issue. Uh, so I don't see anything wrong with, with having stories that, that talk to children or talk to people at any age. And, a lot of these things like Harry Potter are really, you know, archetypes that I've worked into a, a new story uh, idea. Good answer. Okay, I got one more question, and then I want to fire uh, 10 or 12 quick questions at you that require short answers. Um, so last question here. I, I want to get your perspective on the term black market. Um, you know, everybody these days is using the word legacy, and I think that's probably more appropriate. Um, what? How do you feel about uh, the existing people that are in the cannabis world who have been around for a long time, who may be on the outside looking in at this point. Is there such a thing as a viable black market that will continue to exist? Or do you think that uh, with regulation and uh, policing uh, that those who don't, don't get in at this point uh, may have to walk away from cultivation illegally, I guess for lack of a better term? I mean, I use the term black market. I like the word free market better, you know. I think it's black market sort of has negative connotations, whereas a free market, which is really what it is, is uh, more of a positive term. Uh, and definitely there's a takeover of the cannabis industry by people in many cases who were fighting against legalization and demonizing cannabis users in the cannabis industry for many, many years. And now they're, they're cashing in, you know, from Prime Minister Brian Mulroney, who passed uh, some of the most restrictive anti-cannabis censorship laws in the world during his tenure. And now he's involved in a legal cannabis company, many of these cops and other people. And, uh, you know, I, that, that's unfortunate to me. I really think legalization should be more about absorbing the current free market into the legal system, but they mm -hmm. seem to want to replace the current system with a new one. 
And that's partly why I think legalization isn't really working because there's not enough cannabis that's been legalized to meet the demand, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, I mean, for myself, I didn't really open my dispensary or get into this movement so I could sell cannabis. For me, selling cannabis is a byproduct of my activism. And I'm really more interested at this point in getting into other drugs and other plants and pushing the argument in other ways. But I know a lot of people who really deserve to be part of this legal industry who are being shut out. Mm -hmm. And it's going to be years, I think, before that is really fixed. And the the legalization, I mean, in some ways it's wonderful, but in other ways it's a huge mess. Uh, You know, this this system in in Ontario where they've had a lottery to see who gets to sell uh, cannabis and uh, some of the stores now are are not able to function or are not going to be open in time because of uh, problems with supply and getting locations. And so, you know, I think we still have a lot of work ahead. And as someone who sells cannabis and has dispensaries, I'm not sure my dispensaries will ever transition into the legal system. Mm. Uh, partly because if, if they gave me a golden ticket tomorrow and said I could, I could have a, a legal shop and everything, uh, I'd probably go bankrupt. I'd have to turn away most of my clients. I'd have to start selling uh, the legal cannabis, which is not very much of, which is doesn't have any of the medicinal products that my patients really rely on. So I think it's going to be years uh, before we've really made this proper transition mm-hmm. and we're at this kind of point. And a lot of this has got to do with stigmatization. A lot of it's got to do with the cash grab. And in my opinion, legal, legal cannabis, the real economic benefit should not be in people getting rich selling $12 grams. Mm-hmm. The real economic benefit should be Canadians who use cannabis being able to save a ton of money because legal cannabis is so much cheaper yeah. than, than the free market stuff that it really should be in an ideal system. Uh, cannabis prices should crash, and the economic benefit should be that cannabis users have more money left over to spend on rent and food and other necessities instead of cannabis. Yeah. And I really think this is coming. I think that within a couple of years, uh, the price of can- cannabis is going to crash in Canada and around the world quite significantly. Yeah, well, as your average uh, recreational consumer, not super hardcore guy, but I've been into lots of legal stores now, I can't actually tell you that I've purchased legal flour since legalization. I just, it's just not, the value's not there for me. I've gone in and looked many times. Um, so that's just my experience. I've seen photos online of, of buds or pre rolled joints. I was retweeting one the other day with a pre rolled joint that was full of seeds. Mm, I saw that. And it was like $7 for this half gram joint that was 40% seeds. Yeah. Uh, and that should not be acceptable. I mean, that that's that's like finding a mouse in your beer or something in terms of <laughs> quality control issues, right? So we have a long way to go in Canada, I think. The stigma and the challenges uh, and many of the issues around prohibition uh, still remain under legalization. Okay, so now I've got 10 quick questions. Uh, you only have to give me short answers, and you can say pass twice should you need to. Okay, so you don't have to answer everything. You get two passes. Um, your first question. How much cannabis would you say that you consume in a week? So how much cannabis do I consume? Yeah. All of it. (laughs) Good answer. Um, What's your favorite way to consume? My favorite way to consume is joints. Uh, My friends call it a Dana Doobie. That's when you've got a one and a quarter size paper with two or three kinds of cannabis, two or three kinds of hash, and one or two kinds of extract or oil blended in. I'm very much a put it all into one joint and mix it all together kind of guy. Wow. And uh, that's what you call a Dana Doobie. Sounds like a wild ride. Okay, your last name is spelled S-E-N. Are you of Danish descent? I am indeed, yes. My father uh, was born, sorry, my grandfather was born in Denmark and uh, was an immigrant to Canada. 
And uh, I've got a lot of uh, cousins and family in Denmark. Nice. I'm an SEN as well, so it was an easy one for me to ask you. Um, in your opinion, what part of the world has the best bud? Oh, I think Vancouver, BC. I mean, I think there's great bud pretty much everywhere on Earth. Uh, it just may not be as readily available in some places as others. Uh, but, uh, I mean, one of the reasons I love Vancouver and I'm so glad I was born here is that I think we've got an incredibly plentiful supply of high quality mm. cannabis. That's probably unrivaled anywhere in the world. Hometown guy. Okay. Other than yourself, name one person in this new cannabis world or regime that you admire. Somebody I admire. I mean, I admire a lot of, uh, a lot of people out there. I admire people who, who make a sacrifice, uh, for their activism and who give something up or who mm -hmm. take a risk, uh, you know, so there's a lot of, a lot of different people out there, I guess. So what, what I like most is when somebody tell, comes up to me and tells me that they were inspired by something I did to take action themselves. Uh, that's what I really admire. So I really, you know, there's a lot of big names out there, but I really admire the people who don't really have a lot of experience who, who just get into this and just try to make a difference and put their all into it. Uh, you know, that's the kind of thing that really impresses me. Okay. Here's a hypothetical question. Donald Trump, if he's reelected, what will it mean for federal legalization in the U S well, Trump's kind of a strange character, you know, uh, I mean, uh, I'm not a fan of Trump at all, but I will give the Republicans credit, uh, that they legalized industrial hemp in the U S uh, before the last election. And Trump signed the legislation, although he hasn't tweeted about it or commented on it, so I don't think he really particularly cares. Mm -hmm. But uh, Mitch McConnell and those guys, they legalized hemp in the U.S., which was seemed to kind of come out of nowhere and uh, was wonderful to see, you know. And, and so I don't think that Trump is going to legalize cannabis. He seems to really be pushing on the whole war on drugs, build a wall, uh, keep the drugs out of the country, which is all just a failed policy. I like the Trump of the 90s, because in the 90s, I mean, he was still an asshole, but in the 90s, Trump was saying, uh, uh, you know, that we've got the only way to defeat the cartels is to legalize mm -hmm. and that we've got to legalize and regulate all drugs. And he was taking much more of the libertarian right position. Now he's taking the socially conservative right wing position. But, uh, you know, younger Trump really seemed to understand that prohibition was the real problem and legalization was the real solution. Mm. But uh, I sure hope Trump doesn't win the next election. What, I, what we are seeing in the Democrat Party is a lot of talk about legalization. Yeah. And a lot of the candidates, there's a lot of folks running for election, and many of them now are saying openly it's time to legalize marijuana, which has never happened in the Democrats before. And I think bodes very well for both parties. Uh, because once the Democrats take that position, it'll it'll become more popular. But really, I think the real political future is at the grassroots level. This movement has never de de relied on politicians. Yeah. Uh, all of the changes, certainly in the U.S., especially like 99% of the states that have legalized have done so through grassroots referendums, usually opposed by the leaders of both political parties in their state. Mm. Uh, and so I think this is one of those wonderful issues that really crosses a lot of political boundaries. And you can get socialists and libertarians and right-wingers and left-wingers often working together to legalize cannabis. All right, next question. Do you drink alcohol? I do, uh, not very often, uh, less than once a week, uh, usually less, less than once a month, but once in a while I'll have a beer or a a glass of wine, but I'm not a big drinker at all. Okay. Do you invest in cannabis stocks? I don't have any stock investments of any kind, uh, certainly not in the cannabis industry. It's not really something I'm interested in uh, or something I know a lot about, and I kind of, I'm, I'm just not interested in that kind of stuff. All right. 
What does the word partying mean to you? What's the perfect party for Dana Larson? Partying. I mean, I'm not really much of a partier. Mm-hmm. I spend most of my time alone, really, at home working on my computer or with a few of my employees so or what's, something. what's but, the uh, ideal fun evening for you? I mean, I enjoy getting together with closer friends, uh, smoking cannabis and having a laugh and a chat. I'm not so much. I mean, I'm getting on in years. Uh, loud music and big crowds are mm-hmm. less appealing to me than they might have been when I was younger. I'm a pretty quiet guy, really, in a lot of ways. Uh, you know, I do a lot of public-facing stuff, so mm-hmm. when I get my own private time, I appreciate not having to talk to anybody and being able to do my own thing. Mm. Uh, so, uh, you know, to, for me, a good party is a few friends, some cannabis, and some good conversation. No, that's probably exactly my definition, too. Um, do you envision another life after activism? Well, not really. I mean, I, I like writing books, and I sort of imagine myself retiring to a beach somewhere and spending more time writing and less time rabble-rousing and, mm-hmm. and, and being an activist and doing these kind of things. But at the same time, I, I definitely love what I do. I very much enjoy uh, you know, being a media spokesperson. I enjoy making change happen. I enjoy kind of stirring things up. Uh, so I think I'm always going to be involved in that. For me, I really think the next few years it's going to be more about shifting focus away from cannabis and towards the broader war on drugs and towards psychedelics and entheogens. And, you know, they're talking about heroin compassion clubs, an idea which I think is wonderful and I would love to try to help out somehow. Uh, but I expect I'm going to be entwined in, in cannabis and drug war and activism uh, for all of my life. Any final words that you can bestow upon uh, listeners of this podcast? And keep in mind, many of them will be discovering you for the first time. Well, I mean, I I encourage people to get involved and and make a difference and to keep in mind that legalization is not just about money and stocks and cashing in. It's more about a human rights issue and righting the wrongs of really a hundred years of prohibition and and to to look beyond cannabis and recognize that the same reasons that lie behind legalization should also lie behind ending the prohibition of opiates and the psychedelics and entheogens. And we're in the midst of this terrible fentanyl overdose crisis, which is caused entirely by our drug policies and by prohibition. And so I want people to to get involved and make a difference and maybe worry a little less about the money and, and focus more on good karma and making the world a better place and ending this terrible, destructive, horrible, racist, ignorant uh, policy that we call the war on drugs, which has just killed so many people and caused such misery uh, here in Canada and all around the world. Let's end the war on drugs in our lifetime. Nice. Nice way to close it up. How can someone find out more about you online? Well, I'm online at danalarson.com. As you pointed out, it's L-A-R-S-E-N. That's my personal website. You can go to potheadbooks.com and get my books. You can go to mjcreams.com and find out about my creams and salves. Uh, And our dispensary is online at cannabisdispensary.ca. We do mail order cannabis all across Canada. And I think that's all my main my main projects. Uh, you can find out more about me uh, on Twitter as well at Dana Larson. Um, I tweet I tweet almost nonstop uh, <laughs> on Twitter at Dana Larson. That's true. So I do a lot of tweeting, and you can follow me there. All right, cool. Hey, Dana, I know you're a busy guy. Everyone wants to talk to you. You do a lot of public speaking. So I just want to say thank you for giving me 40 minutes of your time to do this and uh, allowing listeners of this podcast to learn a bit more about who you are as a person. I appreciate it. It was my pleasure. Thanks so much for having me. Maybe we can do it again sometime. Thanks once again for listening to the Canadian Cannabis Update podcast. If you have a story that you'd like to share about the cannabis space, I would love to hear from you. 
hit me up at canadiancannabisupdate at gmail.com or my website, cannabisupdate.ca. And if you want to find out more about Canadian Cannabis Update and all of the other podcasts in the Cannabis Media Collective, check us out on Twitter at CanMedCall, just like Cannabis Media Collective, but abbreviated. And you can also find out more about us on Facebook, Instagram, and every podcast-related streaming site in the known universe. Check us out, the Cannabis Media Collective. All right, hit it, Ember. The media contributors within the Cannabis Media Collective do our very best to remain as accurate as possible but take no responsibility for any inaccurate details or facts. If a story interests you, we're glad to have brought it to your attention, but please take the time to research the details for yourself.